Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, a returning guest, Dr. Bill McGraw. I've spoken to Bill about uh, mercury toxicity, a bit about um, GMO, you know, salmon in particular, about various issues, uh, rife machines that help with uh, various conditions such as cancer, et cetera. Today, we wanted to return to uh, aquaculture issues. It seems like there's a lot of uh, dynamics and change around that uh, subject. So, Bill, thanks for coming back. How are you doing? Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me back again. I'm doing great. Yeah, one quick question. What's the difference between aquaponics and aquaculture? Because you mentioned both, and I don't know the difference. Right. So aquaponics is the combination of fish generally fish and plants in a single system, whereas the fish produce uh, waste nitrogen and phosphorus and the plants absorb the waste nitrogen and phosphorus. So it's a very complementary system where one, the the plants clean the water and and provide good water quality and uh, the fish are fed and uh, produce nitrogen and phosphorus that the plants absorb. So it's a closed system that uh, basically produces a lot of plants for sale and that's about 80% of your total revenue and the rest is the fish that you grow. So it it has uh, two different outputs, and it's very successful right now being used all over the world. And aquaponics is more limited. It's just growing plants and water, essentially? Basically, it's limited to freshwater fish is mostly what's used. And the plants are all different kinds of plants. A lot of it's lettuce, some of it's basil. You can grow tomatoes, a variety of different uh, type of plants, uh, depending on the temperature where you live in and the available sunlight. Well, that's interesting. So I, I've I didn't realize, I didn't think about freshwater versus saltwater aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Can people right. do saltwater agriculture? And what would you grow? What kind of plants? Oh, you can do saltwater aquaponics, but it's going to have to be something like a salicornia. Salicornia, they call it, it's a saltwater plant, basically it's like a, like a salty asparagus, but I think it's more of a garnish it's used. It is sold throughout the world. I have grown it 
for years in a system with shrimp and low salinity water, and it grows very well. You can harvest about a kg of salicornia per square meter per month. I think that was a regular thing I would I would do there. It's a pretty hardy plant. Once you get it going, it uh, you can't stop it. It grows like a weed. But there's very few plants that will grow in salt water. It's basically estuarian plants, and a lot of those aren't uh, edible. So you, salicornia is one. There are a few more other ones, and other ones purslane. So you can't do that. And it does clean the water and the roots will absorb nitrogen phosphorus and provide a surface area for beneficial bacteria, which change the toxic nitrogen, such as ammonia and nitrite, into nitrate, which is less toxic and, and can be absorbed by plants. So it's very complementary and it does work pretty well. So in aquaponics, I guess most of it's freshwater. Is there any brackish water aquaponics? And I guess maybe a tiny bit of saltwater aquaponics, but mostly fresh. No, I'd have to say, by and large, it's definitely mostly freshwater people are doing. Tilapia is a very common one because it's a warm water fish. And of course, plants like warm weather, warm weather uh, by and large, for the whole. So other people are growing lettuce and cucumbers and tomatoes and things like that. So it's, uh, you know, you can't grow much in the cold weather in the winter, especially in the United States. So people grow them indoors and more popular in the warmer areas of the world, I'd have to say. What if you want to culture saltwater fish? Do you just have plants there just to keep the fish going or are there other methods that are better? Well, geez, that's a kind of a long story. But yeah, you can do saltwater plants. But again, it's just a few species that I know of that will take off in a system and they will clean the water. But solids have to be taken out of the water before you expose or run that water through a, a tank full of plants. If you don't take out the solids in the water, they basically stick to the roots and cause problems for the plants to grow and, and survive in that water. The roots have to be, have water that uh, is free of solids. And to do that, there's a whole bunch of different ways. You can just use gravity and use a tank uh, that you run water into to settle the solids out by gravity. That's a quiescent tank, as I've mentioned before. Or you can use a more complex procedure, such as a drum filter which is a screen, uh, water is uh, brought into a drum and uh, the water, the filter, the particles are filtered out and the water, remaining water is free of solids. And then you bring it into your area where you have your plants, but drum filters are pretty expensive. So oftentimes people using aquaponics will use like a bird netting, which traps uh, smaller solids, like what I've discussed previously at the Virgin Island Systems developed by the father of aquaponics, Dr. James Rakosi, who I've interviewed and written articles for and we've talked about in a previous podcast. You know, as a layperson, never having done this, I feel like it would be very hard to care for a system with fish and plants. Like, I would mm-hmm. screw it up. But are mm-hmm. they more robust than if you're just growing plants or just growing, you know, just breeding fish alone? Yeah, it it depends. You know, we I was when I teach my basics of aquaculture class, which again is starting up in June twenty second. It's an online course. I always go back to the scenario of the aquarium. So many people that are interested in aquaculture and plants and all and uh, water in general grow fish in aquaria, and that's a classic example of an aquaculture operation. So you have fish and you're feeding the fish and it produces waste. What do you do with the waste? Well, eventually you have to get rid of the solid waste that is produced by the fish, and you may get some algae, you may get some wasted feed. So all that stuff has to come out of there. So if you just have an aquarium, oftentimes the solids end up in your undergravel filter. And if you have aquarium, then you know, basically you have to clean that undergravel filter out eventually and pull out those solids that collect there. And of course you have to have aeration. The more you feed, the more aeration you need. 
Okay, so aeration rates are always based on feed amounts. They're not based on the amount of fish that you have in there. And so as you're feeding more, you need more aeration. And as you feed more, you need you need a way to handle the solids. So if you take that water out of the aquarium and you bring it into another chamber that you don't have any turbulence in, that's solids, those solids will settle out. And then eventually you can drain them off through the bottom of the container or you can filter them out or you can uh, basically siphon the solids out of that container that you have or you can use a different cartridge filter or you can use a, some sort of screen filter like a drum filter and so things get more complicated i guess if you're going to introduce plants you just need to remove the solids so you can take uh, for instance salmon aquaculture it's one of the big success stories of aquaculture 40 percent of 2.5 million tons of salmon is grown in norway in cages so if i have uh, fish in a cage out in the ocean really i don't have to worry about solids because it's basically diluted and ocean currents take away the solids uh, produced by the fish and so the ocean also brings oxygen to the fish through the the cage and takes away carbon dioxide. And so in that particular setup, you don't really have to worry so much about oxygen. You don't have to worry about solids because they're taken away. You just have to worry about basically protecting your fish from predators. So you need a good, a really good cage. And to protect it from predators such as sharks or seals may get into that cage and eat up your salmon. But otherwise, it's a pretty good deal. You know, you keep your fish in a cage in the ocean and the temperature is controlled and your oxygen you don't have to provide and the solids are taken away. You just need to make sure you're in an area that has adequate water current so that that uh, oxygen is brought in, waste is taken away and that you, that solid waste doesn't settle out too much on the bottom below the cages because it can destroy the environment by sucking out the oxygen out of the bottom below your cage and create problems, which it has. But if it's properly engineered and put in the proper location, it can be a real success story. And and so uh, salmon aquaculture is really popular. Bill, one question. So if you have a cage of you know, some kind of fish in the ocean. Well, I guess I, if they're near the bottom, what does it create a column of, of depleted oxygen water as they produce waste and it falls through the cage? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, it can create areas below the cage that are very low in oxygen. So anytime you have solids, you have oxygen consumption. So the solids can actually consume more oxygen than the fish. So you have to be careful when those solids sink through the cage and fish waste and uneaten feed and all that goes down through the cage. Uh, it's, it's good to have good currents. It's good to have a lot of water underneath your cage so that those solids get taken away by the ocean currents. And eventually they'll get digested in the ocean and it could become fertilizer. It could uh, create an area that it's more fertile than previously had, and that could be good for other animals that can eat some of the algaes that are produced uh, from the excess waste, nitrogen, and phosphorus. So it can be good. So just the right amount of nitrogen, phosphorus in the environment is, is fertilizer. It's good for it. And too much is pollution. We call it pollution, and then everybody, some people get angry about that. But, you know, if things are properly managed, like, well, take, for instance, there's a cobia cage culture off the coast of Cologne, Panama, and it's at six miles out. And so it's in deeper water, and so all that waste is just carried away by ocean currents. 
They don't really have a problem except for certain parasites, in which case they have to treat with, uh, I believe they use hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide, and they basically kill the parasites on the fish. And so that's one of the biggest problems also with salmon aquaculture is there is a sea lice that basically sticks to the side of the salmon and sort of sucks the life out of it. So that to prevent uh, these parasites, uh, they have to move these salmon into recirculating aquaculture systems. And that's what they're doing now. But the problem is with salmon is they need really high amounts of oxygen compared to other species and they don't take the solids. So you really have to get rid of all the fish waste uh, as efficiently, as quickly as possible. And that's difficult to do because it means you really have to have efficient solids removal devices such as biodrum filters, or you have to have conical solids removal uh, systems that quickly remove the fish waste and bring that water back into the salmon. And of course, the water that's brought back has to be really clear void and, and void of solids and high in oxygen or your salmon aren't going to be happy. And of course, salmon come from the, uh, you know, where they're born. They're born in mountain streams with really good water quality, low solids, high oxygen, cold water, 16 degrees centigrade. And of course, they make their way out in the ocean. And out in the ocean, of course, you have, uh, by and large, you have still good water quality. And, the, and that's where the salmon grow before they come back to reproduce. So in a recircling aquaculture system, it provides a big challenge in terms of keeping your water absolutely pristine so your salmon can grow, survive up to market size before they're harvested. And they're having a heck of a time doing that because salmon just don't survive the solids, unlike a tilapia. Tilapia in my systems that I grow here in Panama, they just survive a high solids environment and they can survive lower oxygen, such as two parts per million or milligrams per liter, which is really low oxygen, kill a salmon by and large very quickly. But tilapia, no problem. They'll survive and grow in two milligrams per liter low oxygen until you get your aeration going. And so, you know, tilapia are so much easier to grow in these aquaculture recirculating systems. And so are uh, other species such as shrimp, they'll take high solids, they'll take lower oxygen. And so uh, shrimp are a lot easier to grow in recirculating aquaculture systems compared to something uh, like a salmon, which they're trying to do. And of course, all GMO salmon are grown in recirculating aquaculture systems. And, and it takes a tremendous amount of equipment and a tremendous amount of electricity to, keep, to grow that salmon out. When, uh, when you have GMO salmon, what have they been engineered for? To be mm. more tolerant of lower oxygen? Or, you know, what, oh, no, they, what they have they to do it. They've, they've basically introduced uh, uh, growth genes. And so they grow at, at uh, twice the, the rate of normal salmon. Oh. And so that's, and we've already gone through the whole GMO but are, thing. Are they, more, are they more sensitive to, you know, the growing conditions right than regular salmon or no? Oh, geez. Yeah, that's a difficult question. Well, they're selected for, you know, the, the, the salmon that received that gene, most of them, most of them die because the, the, the actual DNA gets screwed up. But the ones that do survive, they'll have to be selected for the ones that can survive a recircling aquaculture system. So they select the ones that can tolerate the, the conditions in the water. But again, you have to have really perfect water quality. You have to have really high dissolved oxygen, like six or eight milligrams per liter dissolved oxygen. You have really low solids, probably below 20 milligrams per liter suspended solids. And that's very difficult to maintain in a system. You have to have really good filters and, and get rid of really small solids like algaes and bacteria. It's really difficult. You have to have complicated, more expensive devices like like protein skimmers and foam fractionators and really fine mesh filters to get rid of all that stuff. And it gets more expensive and more difficult to to maintain water quality with growing up species that don't tolerate poor water quality like salmon. So they really they have to work hard to keep their water quality good. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Okay. So what are some of the trends? 
currently in aquaculture? Like, what do you see around the world or where yeah. you are in Panama? And yeah, I'll tell you, the story is really incredible to look at world capture fisheries and aquaculture production, because right now the combined fisheries and aquaculture is about 190 million metric tons all over the world. From fisheries, you get 80 million metric tons. tons. It hasn't changed since 1985. It stayed the same. It's now decreasing because of overfishing, largely from Chinese uh, vessels that are overfishing waters they shouldn't be in. And so the uh, total capture fisheries has actually decreased from 80 million metric tons since 2014. But aquaculture production has increased since 19. 1985, and it's about 110 million metric tons, so it's more uh, than all of the uh, fish and so on that's harvested through fisheries. Now, if I broke that 110 million metric tons that's uh, produced through aquaculture into various species, it presents a very interesting picture. First off, one third of all the aquaculture products that are produced are seaweeds, and 50% is from China, 35% from Indonesia. Now, growing seaweeds out in the ocean is very, very low capital input. You basically have to have a structure to hold your seaweed on the bottom of your your bay or out in the coastal area of the of the sea and and that's basically it you know your oxygen is already out there you're you don't have to feed the seaweeds because they're absorbing waste nitrogen and phosphorus and any coastal area that has people has excess nitrogen and phosphorus the closer you get and the more people you have the more nitrogen and phosphorus you're going to have and the more pollution you have so the seaweeds are able to absorb the nitrogen and phosphorus clean the water a certain amount and of course they're regularly harvested it doesn't require any feed input so feed costs for an aquaculture operation are typically 40% of your variable cost and it's low capital input. So it's a win-win situation. And so, you know, Wait, you're why, talking why would about- people uh, grow so much seaweed? What's so, yeah. what's so important about seaweed? Oh boy. Seaweeds are just used for an unbelievable number of applications uh, that can be made into feed to feed people, or they can be made into feed uh, for aquaculture or feed for other animals. And they're used in cosmetics and biofuels and other industries. Huh. They extract products. So seaweeds are used on just a wide variety of applications. And, you know, it's easy to grow seaweeds, providing that your your water quality is at least decent. Your water is clear enough. I mean, you can't really grow it out outside of major cities. So areas that have less populations, you can grow seaweeds. And 85% comes from Southeast Asia. We really don't do it on this side of the world, only because it's not really supported uh, by by governments. And it's, uh, you know, there's no subsidies and, and so on. So we really don't grow seaweeds. But out in... Go ahead. What if you grow seaweeds? Seaweeds, along with you know aquaculture of salmon, mm-hmm. or right. would that help the, uh, the aquaculture work better? Absolutely. And there's now a big push to do polyculture with growing several species together. So for instance, you might have a net pen full of salmon and outside the net pen, a certain ways away, you would have excess nitrogen and phosphorus that could be absorbed by seaweeds. And you could also complement that by having uh, oysters or mussels in the water that can absorb some of the algaes that are produced from the nitrogen and phosphorus that are being absorbed by the algaes. And so they are getting into that. They call it multi-trophic aquaculture. And so they grow, you know, they can grow different types of seaweeds and different types of uh, invertebrates, such as oysters or, or uh, mussels, and they do grow very well, providing that there's proper engineering so that these, you know, these oysters are put within a certain amount of distance away from the cages to take advantage of the algaes that are produced and some of the waste particulates that the oysters will feed on and that the oxygen is adequate in that area. And of course, the seaweeds, uh, again, can absorb nitrogen and phosphorus in certain areas around the cages. So it's provided that there's adequate 
adequate engineering and adequate attention to the water quality parameters and they're put in the right locations, it is a super, super win-win situation because it takes advantage of all the waste that's produced, sort of like an aquaponics, except it's instead of being in an enclosed situation, you're out in the ocean, but you're still taking advantage of the waste produced by the fish and you're getting adequate revenue from additional secondary crops. So it's a, a very efficient system and I think it uh, should be implemented more. And of course, China does that way more than the United States. They're a lot more efficient and you know, producing 80, 85% of the seaweeds, they're, they're way ahead of, of the rest of the world. So that's like 40%, 35% of all your aquaculture crops or seaweeds. And then if we move forward, you can say about 35% of all the fish in the world from aquaculture about 35% of all the aquaculture I'm saying is fish and most of that's carp. And that's grown, 80% of that is grown in China. And the reason for that is just it has a super long history. Like 10,000 years they've been growing carp in China. And basically everybody has a, a fish pond and everybody has a carp pond. And they use, and they fertilize that a lot with what they call night soil. Or if you're from Alabama, night soil, where I came from. And that's basically domestic waste that they feed the carp and they harvest the carp and, and eat the fish. And basically a lot of the bad bacteria from the night soil or domestic waste are, are kept in the intestines and the muscle doesn't have as much. And so people can get by on eating that if they cook it well enough. And carp are widely consumed in, in China. In Southeast Asia, not so much, obviously, in the United States, we really don't eat carp. But in Southeast Asia, they, you know, they eat it regularly. And that's a big part of aquaculture and a big part of the success story. Carp is easy to grow. It'll, it'll survive high solids, low dissolved oxygen. It's easy to reproduce. It grows fast and it'll survive high densities. And you don't need a whole lot of equipment to keep a carp grown in a pond. Uh, they basically grow pretty well. And of course, the Chinese have mastered a polyculture. We have a common carp on the bottom eating waste that's on the bottom of the pond. And, and then you have a midwater species, a big head carp, which eats uh, more of the particulates that are growing in the water column, such as zooplankton. And then you have a, another uh, species known as the grass carp, which can feed on grass and plants that you can uh, harvest from a terrestrial environment and throw it in there. And sure enough, those those uh, grass carp will come up and eat the plants. And you can grow three or four species of carp in a single pond that, that occupy a different ecological niche, and they all work together very well. And it can be extremely efficient and st- extremely productive. And so that's why they do it, because these things grow so well together. They have a long history. They survive the poor water quality, and it's largely accepted. I always tell my students of my class, the first rule of aquaculture is to grow a species that somebody wants. Now, that seems sort of intuitive, but I can't tell you how many projects I've consulted to where people are growing stuff that nobody wants. They're growing, uh, I don't know, they're growing trout in New Zealand. And well, people don't really eat a lot of trout in New Zealand. They catch it. You know, there's people catching a lot of trout in New Zealand if they're going to eat them. And they're growing maybe a, a certain type of air-breathing catfish in South Africa. But the people in South Africa don't want any air-breathing catfish. So where are you going to sell it to? You kind of get stuck with all this stuff that you can grow, but nobody wants to buy it. So the first rule of aquaculture, grow something that somebody wants. And right, so yeah. that's that's a big important thing. Obviously, carp is a big success story because people in China, people in Southeast Asia eat it. Now, uh, let's say it. So that's like... 70%. Another 20% is mollusks. This is your uh, oysters and your clams and your mussels. And the reason people grow these things is because, again, it's low capital input. You basically have to have a structure to put your oysters out on in the bay, but yet all the food is provided by algaes in the water. So you don't, 40% of your variable costs you don't need because the oysters and mussels are eating the algaes in the environment, provided that they're put in the proper location so that there's good densities of algaes, not too high, not too low. So that's 80% of all your aquaculture is going to be sea 
seaweeds. It's going to be mostly carp and it's going to be your oysters, your mussels and your clams that people put out there. And that's another big success story. Uh, and again, 80% of all your mollusks are, are, mollusks are grown in China. China has a huge well, Bill, history. There's subsidy when, and so on. When I get uh, you know, oysters or mussels at a restaurant, yeah. I never even know that there's a possibility that they could be farm raised or right. wild caught. I mean, right. do they, are, is there even legislation to require them to disclose that or no? No, geez, they're trying to get certain uh, species are trying to get into certain companies are trying to get into origin labeling. Uh, right now, there's a lot of li- mislabeling going but, on where. But is there one, different uh, requirements for salmon versus, let's say, oysters? That's a good one. Right now, there's no requirement for GMO salmon. So, and, and it's been approved for sale in Brazil and the United States have approved it for sale. So they're shipping it around and people are eating GMO salmon without really knowing it. So to get salmon that are wild caught, you're really going to have to have a sticker that says wild caught salmon. You know, something from Alaska is a big deal. Well, Alaska yeah, like salmon. I, I, when I go to like, you know, Whole Foods or whatever seafood place, you know, grocery store. Right. They'll say wild caught on the fish or not, but I don't remember them saying wild caught on the mussels, the oysters, or any of that right. stuff. So I wonder if the law is the same. You no, know, you'd have to look into origin labeling. You're going to have to ask your fishmonger and your seafood counter person, and it may come down yeah. to talking to the manager, and he's going to, you know, ask them where do you get these things, and he should be able to tell you, oh well, these come in at such and such at, from China, or they come in from, you know, uh, New Zealand produces a lot of green lip uh, mussels, and they're of very good quality because uh, New Zealand's a pretty green country. But if you get something from China, you don't know. Oh, you know, these oysters, these seaweeds can absorb uh, pollutants from the environment. They can even absorb heavy metals. Uh, absolutely. I've re- read research papers on that. So you really need to know where your seafood's coming from. And stuff that comes from China is often rejected. The ports in the United States, if they have too high levels of, of pollutants, or, or uh, sometimes they put a lot of antibiotics, or sometimes they put a lot of chemicals in the food to make it to make it palatable, or to make it pass yeah. a test, of a bacterial test. So I, you know, I tell people, be very careful when you get something from Asia, because you just don't know where it's been grown or how it's been grown. So you you really should origin labels would be fantastic to have. Not everybody requires it. A lot of stuff is mislabeled. So you could get a catfish that has, that's been grown in China from domestic waste. They have no idea how it's been grown. And it has, it's mislabeled as something as, oh, they could call it some fancy name. They could call it a cherry snapper, anything. I mean, they come up with a fancy name to get you to buy it and eat it, but you don't really know. You really have to get an orange, li- an origin label where you have to get to know your, your seafood guy and say, hey, man, where's this coming from? Right. Is this from China? Where's it from? And how's it grown? And, and chances are he will be able to tell you that. So what's like the most amazing aquaculture setup you've ever seen? Or is it one you've made or like you've seen other people do? Well, I, I worked on a South African project known as Sea South Africa, and they were, we were growing uh, shrimp, very limited water exchange at 10 kilograms per cubic meter. And we had interest uh, from 15 different countries all over the world. We were growing shrimp sustainably and recircling, recircling the aquaculture systems. We were the first in the world at that time to grow shrimp at 50, 60, and 70 gram size at five and six kgs per cubic meter and very low and zero water exchange systems. It was an exciting project. So that was that. That was a lot of fun for me. It was a very rewarding project. Some of the other systems, you know, salmon is a big success story, growing salmon out in cages. You know what's a big success story is the catfish industry of the United States. They're growing about a half million metric tons. It's a very big success story. You know, catfish is widely eaten in the southeastern United States, shipped all over the world. It's grown sustainably. The only problem that they have is what we call off flavor. Now, when you're growing a catfish in a pond in, say, Mississippi, where 70% of all catfish is grown, at any point in time, 
time, 20% of all the fish you're getting ready to harvest may have a chemical compound produced from a, a, a blue-green algae. And that chemical is typically a geosmin or a isoborneal type of compound that's produced naturally from your blue-green algaes, and it gets into the flesh of the catfish. So they bring in special taste testers, which will taste that catfish and tell them whether or not it's off flavor. And if it's off flavor, you have to wait until that catfish is, reduces that, that compound in the flesh. And how you do that is used to water exchange, reduce your feed rates, the blue-green algaes decrease, the chemicals in the, in the flavor decrease, and that catfish will become better tasting. And then you can harvest your catfish. But if you have catfish that are flavor, people don't want to eat them. So you have to then look at a different pond full of catfish that are, that are able to be harvested. But generally, so looking at a sustainability basis, looking at economics, you know, the catfish, channel catfish industry, the southern United States is a big win. And it's a billion dollar industry. It's sustainable. It's uh, engaging in new technologies where they're increasing the densities and decreasing the land areas. And uh, that's, uh, you know, the research that's been going on there. And it, it, it is a success story by and large, and it's a sustainable industry. So what's, uh, I mean, what's important to you about what's going on with uh, agriculture right now? Like what, uh, what are the most important forces going on or at play? Well, for me, I'm involved in shrimp aquaculture. I've been doing it for 25 years. And one of the big stories is a bacteria uh, known as a vibrio perihemolyticus. And what happens is there's a vibrio bacteria that contains a binary gene that produces a toxin, which basically destroys a digestive organ known as the hepatopancreas. And so this bacteria, which contains this binary gene, they have no idea where this binary gene came from. It originally came from China. This bacteria spread throughout the world and decreased shrimp aquaculture by 20%. So shrimp aquaculture is a boom and bust type of aquaculture. Unlike some of the other aquaculture industries, uh, production can decrease in in an amount from 20% all the way down to 80%. I think Thailand uh, decreased their shrimp production, something like, oh, I don't know, at least 50% that I remember. And that was from various diseases. So shrimp can be affected by a a dozen different viruses and a bacteria known as uh, Vibrio bacteria, which can basically destroy the pancreas, the digestive organ. It's absolutely wiped out, completely wiped out. The aquaculture industry of Panama came through. They violated biosecurity. They brought in diseased shrimp into the hatcheries. They couldn't produce uh, post larvae that weren't diseased. They stocked them into their ponds. This thing spread throughout Panama like a wildfire, wildfire and completely collapsed the entire industry of Panama, the entire industry, aquaculture, shrimp industry of Panama, which normally produces between six and 8,000 metric tons and it's shipped out to the European market. It was a success story, but it's collapsed. And that's just a violation of biosecurity. They brought in diseased shrimp. They brought in this bad bacteria, Vibrio bacteria. It spread like wildfire. I have seen it. I have suffered losses myself. I had to regroup and go back in and start my own hatchery because all the hatcheries cannot be counted on. Now we can talk about shrimp aquaculture. One of the biggest challenges is biosecurity and disease. If you do not maintain biosecurity, if you do bring in a diseased animal into your uh, farm, or into your hatchery, that disease will spread like wildfire. So biosecure is number one priority. If you're working in an, in an outdoor pond and you bring an infected tissue from another a farm that contains a virus, that virus will then spread to your stock and throughout the entire farm. I've seen it for once. You know, I went 25 years without a single disease issue in shrimp aquaculture because we maintain biosecurity. Unfortunately, all the shrimp hatcheries of Panama have absolutely collapsed and they're now passing out disease post larva. And so this disease post larva causes huge 
problems and just kills just about everything you have. It's an incredibly lethal bacteria. So you have to reestablish biosecurity. You have to start over. I have uh, brood stock on maturing and unfortunately I have to engage the entire biosecurity and complete vertical integration where you're spawning your own shrimp, you're producing your own post larva, you're growing your own post larva. And of course, I already have my people who are buying my large organic shrimp for sale. So that part, the market is satisfied. And so I just have to now produce uh, the biosecure part of it and grow my own uh, post larva, which I've done before. It's a, it's a lot of work, but I've done it before and I'll do it again. So for our shrimp aquaculture, under, unlike a lot of uh, shrimp aquaculture industries, the number one problem is disease. It's always been disease. It's always going to be disease. And the number two problem is probably economic. Uh, competing with China is very difficult, like so many other industries. They've mastered the shrimp aquaculture industry, but there is the den of iniquities in terms of disease. That's where all your viruses come from, from your from your shrimp aquaculture. It's where your flu virus comes from. It's obviously where the scandemic has come from. And so it's it's complicated in terms of disease for shrimp aquaculture. Biosecurity is the number one priority. Okay. So if you have a facility, you got to be incredibly careful and not really let anything in there. Right. But what could compromise your biosecurity? Like what are some examples that may be uh-huh. not obvious? Well, the obvious one is not don't bring any post larva. Now we need to talk about something called specific pathogen free. Now in Panama in 2015, the World uh, Disease Authority from the, I think it's Arizona University came down. His name is Dr. Donald Leitner, recently passed away, came down to the hatcheries of Panama and over several years sampled all the shrimp there in the hatcheries and declared it uh, disease free. And then they're given a very, very special certification known as specific pathogen free or SBF status. Once you achieve that status, you have achieve first world aquaculture status. And now all your hatcheries are turning out post, they're growing post larvae that are of a special disease-free status and they can be relied upon to be stocked into your ponds and be disease-free. Unfortunately, Panama threw that all the way when they brought in disease broodstock and disease post larvae from another country and the entire industry collapsed. Once you violate that SPF status, chances are you will never get it back again. No one will ever trust you. So an SPF status is almost a sacred certification and shrimp aquaculture hatchery industry. And once you violate that, it is something that is just incredibly difficult to ever obtain again. And incredibly difficult to get that out of your hatcheries. And right now they're still, still kicking out post larvae that are diseased. Now Ecuador has gone through the same thing. And right now they've, they're have they producing disease resistant uh, shrimp, but they have worked incredibly hard on that. And they've been exposed at over a decade to that particular bacteria. And, and unfortunately, Panama has been exposed maybe a few years. And so they're going to be going through some really hard problems problems over the next couple of years, trying to get rid of that bacteria or producing disease-resistant shrimp. And they're probably going to have to import import more shrimp that are, are more disease-resistant, increase the better genetics to survive this horrible transgression or whatever you'd like to call it that they've done. But losing SPF status is, is a big, horrible thing to have to endure, and they're, they're enduring it now. So I'd have to say that's the biggest problem. So what happens naturally, though? Why don't these, uh, why aren't fish populations wiped out? Like what happens in the, you know, out in the ocean, in the brackish water that prevents these problems? Yeah, this is an awesome, awesome question. And it is because shrimp out into the ocean have not been selected for growth. Once you take a fish, bring it into a, a pond or a cage or, or a recirculating system and start selecting that fish for growth. The fastest growing fish, oh, take that one to reproduce. Absolutely, it's simple selection. But once you do that, you're automatically deselecting for certain genes having to do with 
disease resistance. That's why hatcheries always run two lines of production. They run a line for high growth that basically does not have the genes for disease resistance, and they run a line that's disease resistant that doesn't grow as well. So once you select for one particular trait, you automatically deselect for another one. You just can't have your cake and eat it too. And so they always run two lines. So if you're growing outside, you don't have biosecurity, you want to you want a fish or a shrimp that's disease resistant. But if you're growing in a biosecure system like mine, you want to you want something that grows fast. You want a high growth line. So you put that in there and it grows twice as fast as the, as the disease resistant one. And then you harvest faster, you make more money. And though obviously you want your, your system to make money. Now in the wilds, they haven't been select for anything. So the fish that is growing out there, mother nature basically selects for the one that can survive. And so there's a natural selection process where the fish that have the genes for disease resistant are the ones that survive. And, and so you get a hardy fish. Maybe it doesn't grow as fast, but it can certainly survive out there. And it, it, it basically grows in that environment. It's been selected to grow out in that environment. It, it's hardy. But once you take it into a contained situation, it loses a lot of the genes that uh, made it uh, available to survive in the wild. And that's, so that's how that works. Interesting. So what, like, what are your personal plans with your business? How do you want to expand it or grow it? Or are you uh-huh. just trying to bring attention to good practices? Like what's your role? Yeah, my role is to basically continue on with the private sector. I wouldn't want to get the industry overall or the government involved too much. So I'm pretty much on my own as a private organization. I will continue on growing shrimp. Uh, we're going to continue on with the hatchery producing post larva. Corporations and, and companies have contacted me about buying post larva to stock because my reputation is still solid in the business and the industry. My customers are always asking me, when can we have more shrimp? So there's a market there and it's an organic market that's disease free and so so I still have it available and I'm still producing and, and selling. And so, you know, for me, I'm going to continue on with what I'm doing. Now, there is tremendous potential off the coast of, of Panama to do things like seaweeds, to do things like oysters. The oyster industry is basically collapsed from overfishing. The lobster industry in the Pacific is collapsed from overfishing. And so there's really not things like scallops out there because they've just been overharvested. But there is a potential to bring in uh, from other countries disease-free stock and grow them out in the ocean. That's a big one. There is a uh, potential to do real, but true biosecure systems in Panama, but they'd have to be run by people trained in that uh, industry to handle the intensive systems. And they know they have PhDs in what quality and they can really be able to master the engineering to help these shrimp survive the water quality challenges. So it's not just a matter of putting shrimp in a, in a tank and growing them. You really have yeah. to have the proper uh, engineering to have these things survive. So I'm still going to be on my own doing my own thing for sure. Um, have you ever consulted with like a really huge operation that's doing it? And, you know, if, as you get bigger and bigger and bigger, like what are some of the limits on doing like a, an enormous operation of this? Right. Yes, I have consulted to them. I can't really tell you what, what, who and what I did because of confidentiality, but I have consulted to some of the larger industries and it comes down to the same sort of thing. What is your market? Always the first question to answer. What is your market? Who's going to buy the stuff you're, that you're growing and you always want to have a market advantage. So for me, my market advantage is growing a large shrimp that's organic. They can't grow a large shrimp here because there's separate confined seasons. There's two seasons that are about three or four months long because of the dry season, because of the rainy season, they can't grow shrimp out in the ponds. So I grow shrimp 365 days a year under greenhouse and I don't have a problem producing a large shrimp because, well, I'm not affected by the rain or the or the dry season. So we always look for a market advantage. And it's the same thing if you're a commercial industry and you have you have tens of millions of dollars invested in your industry, you're still going to want to maintain biosecurity. You're still going to want vertical integration. Look, here's a classic example. I interview the only tilapia recircling aquaculture system in the United States. It's, I think, in Virginia. I think they call it the Blue Ridge Aquaculture. And those 
those guys are pretty switched on. They grow tilapia, ship the tilapia directly to the market in places like New York City and places like Toronto, and they get a premium price for those large live tilapia that they grow. And one of the things I asked them, you know, what is the biggest challenge of your business? You're obviously extremely successful. It's a multi-million dollar industry. You've been producing tilapia for 20 years. How do you do it? What's the most important thing? And he told me flat out vertical integration, maintaining the the, uh, spawning and maintaining the total vertical integration biosecurity because they used to buy small tilapia from different producers and stock into their systems. But eventually there was a problem with uh, disease, just like what's going on in Panama. Unfortunately, you know, I, I relied on the Panama shrimp industries, the hatcheries to give me post larva for eight years. They did. And there was never a problem with disease. And unfortunately, they really screwed that up when they brought in a disease product. But going back to our tilapia story, they're, they're a big success story. That is another big success story of the United States. They are a profitable zero water exchange, a recircling aquaculture system that produces tilapia. They've got their own genetics. They got their own hatchery. They got their own market. And, you know, their biggest thing was to completely vertically integrate, produce their own small tilapia to stock into their systems. And hey, man, they're taking off. They've built, they may have their own feed manufacturing. They have their own processing. Those guys are, you know, the sky's the limit for them guys because they've developed a market. You know, where can you get large live tilapia 365 days a year? Well, you can't. It's cold in Virginia. You can grow them three or four months a year if you're lucky. So they're indoors, they're biosecure, and they're fully integrated, including the feed manufacturing. And they have they have the market, they have the potential, and they're taking off. Are there any like dream fish or mollusks that uh, no one's been able to you know create through agriculture that you're working on? Well, what comes to mind is cobia. Right now, they're producing cobia in cages off the coast of Panama in the Atlantic Ocean, and it's pretty successful. I've always wanted to get into cobia because it's a warm water fish. It's hardier than something like salmon. There is a big market for it. But right now, you can still get decent marine fish here. Sometimes the quality is variable. You can buy them in different trucks that travel around Panama. There's not really so much a seafood shop. That's hard to find. So you buy them off trucks and the, and the quality is variable. But I often envision putting together a cobia system that we could grow and harvest on a regular 365 day a year basis. I've often envisioned growing salmon in the mountains of Panama. Like Now take, for instance, the first GMO salmon ever grown in the world was in the mountains of Panama, right up the road from where I'm doing my shrimp stuff, but they're farther up. They're, they're another thousand feet above sea level and they grow them in the mountains of Panama. So I've often want to do that, but I would like to produce a premium salmon that's grown along with the coffee and all the waste from the salmon is put into a coffee operation. Coffee is huge in Panama. It's the biggest the biggest agriculture industry from where I'm at right now. And they, they grow the world's best coffee. So I often wanted to combine a salmon coffee system where I'm growing premium organic salmon and it's sort of a flow-through system where all the waste is then taken from the salmon, put into the coffee farms, and then grow uh, organic coffee and organic salmon at the same time. I'm using specialty feeds that I would make to produce a premium tasting salmon that's organic. I always wanted to do that. You don't have to have the fish and the plants. You don't have to have like underwater plants to do no. aquaculture. Mm-hmm. You can have the, you know, the material flow through to plants that are just on the side. Well, absolutely. If you've ever taken waste out of a system, such as the shrimp systems that I grow, and I put them on plants, they grow exceptionally well. After all, the waste that comes out of an aquaculture system has everything a plant needs. It has all the nitrogen. It has all the phosphorus. 70% of the phosphorus 
uh, from an aquaculture system is wasted. It ends up in the in the solids that you collect. And at least 30% of the nitrogen in an aquaculture system is ends up in the solids. So if you take those solids off, it comes out as a sludge. You apply it to plants. Plants just take off. Now, the salts in the water, oh. seawater is wonderful for plants. It contains all the elements a plant needs to grow. I mean, it contains what? Iron and uh, what? Zinc and, uh, you know, the list goes on. Manganese and magnesium and calcium. It's all in seawater. The only problem is it contains a little bit of extra sodium chloride. So if you take out most of the salt out of the sludge, the sludges are wonderful vet fertilizer material. And I've grown uh, I've grown uh, tomato plants 12, 12 foot high just on the sludge wow. from, from my shrimp system. And I've got all that documented in harvest reports. And uh, they grow exceptionally well, This the sludge that comes out of there. So I have to envision, I would like to grow into the mountains of Panama, growing organic salmon, and then using all that sludge for coffee. That's kind of my dream. Imagine Homer Simpson saying, mmm, sludge. Yeah, there you go. That's exactly right. Mm, sludge. But the sludge, nothing wrong so, with it. You can you can so, put so it on your plants. Question here. So does the um and then the plants what what's recirculated back to the fish from the plants? Well, that would be collecting all the solids. And then the water would be brought through a, an external filtration process and all the sludge and solids would be collected, including some of the water to use as for irrigation or what they call fertigation. And then some of that water would then be either with, with excellent water quality as we filtered everything out. We can run it through different beds. You could use wetland systems to filter out all of the waste. And the water then can be returned to the stream of perfect water quality. And that's no, a doable does it, thing. Does it, oh, does it come back from the plants to go back into the fish tank? It can. A certain amount can and a certain amount can go back into your into your stream. That's that's a doable thing. If you have the proper engineering, you can put it through a variety of different wetland systems to remove all of the solids and absorb all the waste nitrogen, phosphorus, and that water going back into the stream is just as good as the water that came into your into your salmon system. But you have to have proper engineering. You have to have science. Right, if you right. just fling it together, it won't work. You really have to measure the parameters, engineering properly, and have proper management skills to be able to be able to work those shrimp and work I'm sorry, work those fish and work those plants. So that's integrated in the proper proportions. Well, wouldn't the, um, depending on the plants that you partner with the fish, would uh-huh. that change the taste of the fish? Or how, like, how does it alter them? Like, what would, you know, if I do coffee with fish, like the uh-huh. salmon that you want to, uh-huh. what's that going to be like versus me doing, uh, I don't know, broccoli and salmon or something? Well, you know, we'd have to take that water out of the system, take out the solids, apply the solids to the coffee, and then use some of that water for irrigation, clean the rest of that water. You could easily put together a wetland system where you could grow wetland plants, and then the water that's returned to the stream is absolutely of pristine water quality. There are external methods of growing plants by using water from that salmon system that can be used to grow a variety of different plants before it's returned back to the stream. But you can grow wetland plants and return some of that water back to the system completely free of solids and just a perfect water quality. So would it change the taste of the salmon? Not that I know of. I've never heard of such a thing as growing certain plants that really change. Because the plants have different acidities and they give different things to the soil, et cetera. I I would think it might you know, if you're, you know, the pHs of the water to grow fish are typically between, say, 7.2 and 7.8. That's typical pH water for growing fish. Uh, plants like it a little lower. The plants in your aquaponic system would probably have a pH of around 7. And so what you can do is once you take out those solids, you can apply them directly to terrestrial agriculture, such as coffee, or you can take that water and then apply it to certain plants that will take a little higher pH. And then you can adjust the pH 
of the water so that it's acceptable to both the plants and the fish. And it can be a win-win situation if the water if the water pH is manipulated. Obviously, you can't get a really hard water or a water that contains a lot of carbonates that has a very high pH because plants really won't like that. They like a lower pH. So you'd have to pick your water your water source. And, and for Panama, all of our water that comes out is like a pH of like six eight. It's a uh, it doesn't it's it doesn't contain a lot of carbonates. It doesn't contain a lot of calciums. I've been measuring it. You should do experiments where you grow like, you know, tilapia with a whole bunch of different plants and see what happens, uh-huh. you know, see what flavors you get and what weird uh-huh. things you see. Actually, I have a student that took my aquaponics course, my basic basics of aquaculture course, and he's uh, moving from Canada to Panama, and he's actually doing a whole bunch of different types of aquaponics. He's built his greenhouse. I'm going to consult to him, and it's going to be super popular. And I'm looking forward to for him to get started, but he's got to do his paperwork and get his ducks in a row so he can come down here and begin. I, I know his father very well, and he's already set up here, and uh, they're, they're, they're great people, and I can't wait to start working with them. So they are going to work aquaponics, but generally, you know, you, you need that capital input. And unfortunately, the biggest problem is getting the right capital input with the right people. If the capital input is put together with the wrong people running the operation, making the wrong decisions, it can result in absolute disaster. And if you look at my YouTube, you'll see I've done a number of series of videos where we're looking at where capital input was given to the wrong person and the wrong management team that didn't have the skills and the knowledge of maintaining water quality and the knowledge of the engineering, they screw everything up. The production systems collapse and they give aquaculture a bad name. So basically the capital people people putting that capital input have to find the people like me that to have the degrees, to have the management, to have the engineering, to have the water quality experience management background that can manage the system engineering, make them work and basically produce the results. You know, otherwise the systems will collapse and you can look online on YouTube and I, I go over some of these systems that I know of that have collapsed. Basically the people get the capital input, they hire the wrong people, maybe they hire their brother, they hire their brother-in-law, they they put the money into accountants or, or other people that had don't really have the the aquaculture experience and knowledge. And the thing, you know, the money gets wasted. The management is poor. The system collapses after three years and goes to receivership. And then, then people say, well, well, it can't be done. Well, it can't be done because it was poor management and, and improper use of funds. And you can go through that aquaculture production after production. There's people in Panama that I talk to that have problems with that. And, you know, there's not a whole lot I can do once, you know, the money's been spent and the management's been screwed up and the engineering is is poor and, the, and stuff's dying and, and nobody has any more money. You have to start out right. Find the guy, find the PhD, find the guy who has the engineering and the background and the abilities to do the job, and then you'll be successful. And that's how it's done. It's the right people making the right decisions and the right capital input given to the right people that can use that capital in properly and develop systems that work and that are harvesting. Look, if you put capital input into a system and it begins, you begin to break ground, six months later, you should be selling into the market. I've always done that. Six months later of building, I've always sold, and that's not a problem. And if you're not selling after six months, you've you haven't you haven't done your homework. You haven't spent the right kind of money and hire the right people. But just don't do aqua cancel culture. That wouldn't be very good. Right, right. You have to do your homework. Invest in the right people. You know, really have to have a guy who has a degree in aquaculture, who has the experience, who has the knowledge, and who has the, ex- the experience. And look at his system and look at the systems he's running. You know, does he have systems up and running? Can show you. Has he? You know, does he have the degrees and the experience? You know, you really have to put your money with into the right people that can do the work, rather than uh, your brother-in-law or some guy you think that uh, will work or somebody whatever. You know, an accountant. <laughs> I don't know. I, I've seen. Uh, look at the. Look, you know what to do if you want to be successful. Look at the operations that have failed. Look at the people responsible and who they invested in. Where did they put the money? How did they run the systems? And who was responsible managing that system? And you have to look at what's missing. 
All right. Well, you mentioned you have an aquaculture class. So tell me about yep. what, you know, when, this is the resources part of the call. So where can people find out more about you and where are these classes you're talking about? Like what are some resources? Yeah. If you just go to my website, which is newaquatechpanama.com. So it's N-E-W-A-Q-U-A. T-E-C-H-P-A-N-A-M-A.com. You'll see I have that courses under research and classes. There's a there's a title bar there. You click on that and you'll get to see all the individual classes. It's seven weeks. It's 14 courses. I cover everything, production methods, hatchery, biosecurity, economics. I cover a bit on GMOs, a bit on mercury and fish, uh, just about everything you'd want to know. We cover production systems for all over the world. I answer everybody's questions and I have reviews from five different students from five different classes classes and you'll get to read those reviews and the and the names and the dates are listed and all that. And it's been a big success story for me. I really enjoy it. People get a lot out of it. It's it's relatively inexpensive. The class is $280. It's 20 bucks a quarter an hour. I keep the numbers pretty low so everybody gets a chance to ask questions. And I have lots of people interested already and I'm sure it's going to be filled up fairly soon. I just put the I just put the syllabus online I think yesterday the day before. And so once this I'm sure once this podcast comes out people will will listen to it and, and become excited and then contact me and it'll fill up pretty quick. I already have a couple of people that are that are interested going to take the course. So I'm looking forward to doing it again. It's June 22nd. It's every Tuesday and Thursday from 11 to 12. I think that's 11 to 12 central time, but you can you can check my course syllabus. It's on there. Okay, very good. Well, Bill, it's always good to have you and, and thank you. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much for having me, Richard. I look forward to doing it again. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.